All right, today I want to talk about chapter 5, and uh, I'm not going to have time to talk about everything in chapter 5, and uh, I think I will talk primarily about this stuff at the beginning, where I talk about uh, the idea of society being a computation and society having a hive mind and the four classes of computation you see in, in human relationships. And there's some stuff at the end I want to talk about, about the unpredictability of the economy, and some stuff about the, maybe also a little bit about aesthetics. Uh, there's a little bit I want to say. There's a lot of stuff in the middle of the chapter about power laws, and I think I probably won't have time to lecture on that. And uh, as I was saying at the right when we came in, it's sort of, in a way, the power law stuff doesn't have that much to do with the theme of the book. It's just something I've always wondered about power laws, and I've never seen a good explanation of them. And I just wanted to kind of nail them. And uh, again, as a writer, I get interested in power laws because it sort of explains, you know, why why I don't make as much money as Stephen King and, and why that should be okay. And, you know, it, it has to be okay. Now, I'm just trying to get the projector to work. Let's see what I have to do here. I've, I've forgotten how to do this. Oh, yeah, push this button. That might do it. Uh, uh, let's try this. There we go. Okay, so... Um, I thought just to do a few demos right at the start here. And uh, let's see, can I borrow your book? Uh, thanks, Greg. And uh, I want to start with some of the, the birds demos. We did those before. I think I've showed them to you before, but it would be worthwhile just to look at them again for a minute. Because uh, this is a good example. Uh, of a class four computation that happens when we get multiple systems interacting. And let's see, where, where do I have this? Um, this is something that was invented quite a while ago by a guy called Craig Reynolds. He works for Sony now. And uh, let's see, I'm just looking for where the bird's demo is. Uh, I guess, uh, hmm. Well, I guess it's down in the science directory. Okay, so um, let's see. Science. So I'm going to start up the Boppers program. And. Uh, So I want to find boppers.exe in here. Here it is. And uh, let's make it nice and big. And as I've, we've discussed this a little bit before, this is this artificial life program I wrote at Autodesk and then actually ended up, uh, I got laid off and they let me keep the code and I uh, released this as an independent product from uh, a company in Corte Madera. 
they were sort of sleazebags. Uh, and they didn't pay me most of my royalties. Um, let's see. So I'm looking for the... to get a paper from their lawyer because they had been paying me you know a lot they were paying me $90,000 a year for a while that was the best I ever had it those are the days this is at Autodesk yeah it was the, for, they, for a while it was just really crazy there it was the, the early 90s and they had more money than they knew what to do with and it was even before the internet got big and they were like uh, let's uh, let's let's hire these people to do really cool things, and uh, so they had some guys working on virtual reality. They called it the Cyberspace Project, and then I did the Cellular Automata Project, and we did James Glick's Chaos. We did that software, and then I was doing this artificial life software, and then Autodesk stock went down, and they noticed that these things we were doing had nothing at all to do with their core business which is helping architects build buildings or helping industrial designers design like turbines, you know, dishwashers. I mean, yeah, I would argue with them. I would try to make a case. Well, you should really have the cellular automata. We could model the heat flowing through the engine using this. And they're like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> but then, uh, but then they, they laid off me and most of the guys I was working with. But... So they, they didn't want to market this software because they hadn't made that much money on the Chaos software. It, uh, it sold pretty well. It sold about 50,000 copies. But they didn't make any money because uh, it was because they, they pissed it away on, uh, on the, uh, the documentation. They got the documentation group involved before the software was done. And so they had like five people who were getting you know, their salary. And all they were doing was screwing around writing the, the user guide for our program, which wasn't done, so just the clock was running. And, and those are, they, they build that in terms of the company. So by the time we shipped the product, we had this huge, at least, debt in the, in the ledgers. So it looked as if the product was not successful, though in a way it did pretty well. And, uh, but that's... But it was that was really fun working there. Anyway, I'm trying to find uh, trying to load an experiment file, and uh, why am I not finding my experiment files? Uh, let's try again. File, open, uh, open. Maybe it's params that I want to open. Yeah, that's it. Okay, so params. Uh, so uh, I think I think gnats is a good example of, of the birds. Okay. Uh, no, that's not a good example. Uh, let's. Uh, I think fat birds is a good one. Okay, so let's open. Uh, so I'm opening params. I'm opening fatbirds.bl. There we go. Okay. I love these things. So um, we've got three flocks here. There's a red, green, and a blue flock. And uh, 
I mean, that's... By now, I think we've seen enough simulations that it's pretty easy to see that that's class 4. Okay? It's not random seething, not class 3. Okay? It's obviously not periodic. It's not dying out. It's, it's class 4. Now, uh, what we could do to sort of simplify what's going on here, we could go to say, instead of having three flocks, let's just have one kind of bird. Let's just have a bunch of green ones and get rid of the reds and blues. And uh, another thing we might do is let's put the walls on the world uh, so they can't go off the edge. And now uh, you can see them flocking around here. And uh, this is sort of behavior that you see, which is that they, uh, they bunch up, and, but then they'll break into separate groups. So that's the sort of uh, computational aspect that it's in a way it's a little like gliders that we keep having. Let's see as many as we can here. How many? How high can it go? 27. Okay. So now we've got 27 of them here, and so they form these these clusters, and then they go off. They keep grouping. They have individuals move from one cluster to another. Now, what is the rule? Uh, well, Craig Reynolds, uh, as I've mentioned and before, but let's just recap it one more time. There's three, three principles for these flocking programs. The birds try not to, they try to adjust their speed, so if they're about to ram into another one, they slow down. If there's another one about to hit them, they speed up. They try to fly parallel to their nearest neighbors. Actually, what we do here is you, average, you look at your two closest neighbors, average their direction, and try to go in that direction. And then another thing is you also take it, figure out where the center of the flock is, and you head towards the center of the flock. Now, as I mentioned in the book, uh, when you actually write these simulations, you find out there's a lot of little decisions you can make. It turns out it's better not to just use the, the whole average of the flock. It's better to uh, do a weighted average and pay more attention to the guys that are near you. But anyway, uh, you get these emergent things. You find them doing these sort of DNA strands these double helix things. And uh, now the point here is this is like a real simple toy example of society. Uh, like one of the simplest things that people do, if you go to the mall and look at people walking around, they uh, avoid running into each other. And they, uh, they do these sorts of flocking behaviors. And I think for a while this is all the demo I'm going to need. So I'm going to turn this off. I'd like to pull the plug out, but Ephraim says I shouldn't do that. Okay. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll give the fan a minute to calm down. Uh, so. So that's one of the things when you look at people moving in crowds, we're very sensitive to each other's motions. You, you don't want to bump into people. You tend to move a little bit parallel. Now, normally, the thing of heading towards the middle of the flock, that's something you would only do if you feel threatened. Okay? Often there's other drives that you might have. If you're trying to get into a, a concert, you're trying to push towards the front. You know, or if you're trying to escape somewhere. 
And uh, we see people's motions doing these kinds of things. Now, um, something, another thing that people do together, rather than physically move, is that they talk to each other. And that's something that's interesting to think about. The four, I find the four classes of computation, it's sort of useful to think about them in terms of conversation. Because, like I would say, a class one con conversation is if you have somebody that always goes back to the same topic, everything always leads back. Like, something I think I've mentioned before, some people my age, you know, whatever you talk to them about, then they always bring it back to, you know, something about the government that they're angry about. Or I have another friend, you know, he's always talking about the environment. And that's, that's interesting and it's important, but it's like a fixed point, a tractor. It's like wherever I start out talking to this guy, we always end up, you know, at the same point. You know, isn't it awful that, you know, whatever, whatever. And so that's... Uh, so it's not, although I love him, it's not, it's not very interesting to have a conversation with him because I know we're always going to get drawn into that point of tractor. Now, another kind of conversation is class two where you sort of go around and around in a circle. And uh, often we do this with people that we're in relationships with, like a wife you know, or a parent. You know, there's like you have the same argument over and over again, and then it sort of never resolves itself. There's this Scottish psychologist, R.D. Lang, and I quoted a couple. He did this little book called Knots about these little loops that people get themselves into. Like, uh, I'm guilty that you're guilty that I'm guilty that you're guilty that I'm guilty, you know. Or I'm angry that you're angry that I'm angry that you're angry. You can get get into these lacerating kinds of loops. And uh, then again, the class three conversation is uh, that's more like your more typical enjoyable kind of conversation, where you you don't really know where it's going and people are just throwing in things and it's sort of evolving in all sorts of directions. And uh, that's sort of the type of conversation that, that's more pleasant to have. And then class four would be somewhat more purposeful. And here we're thinking about where you're actually, it's like you're having this, every now and then you'll have some intense conversation with somebody about some topic of mutual interest to you. And you'll feel like as you're talking, your scales are falling from your eyes. You know, you're saying things you didn't know that you knew. And they're saying things that surprise you. And, you know, you're just, you know, it's, it's really, really growing. This sort of like the Plato's dialogues are the, the classic example of that. And that's, uh, I would say that's really what we think of as a class four conversation. And uh, where it's more focused rather than drifting all over the place. So those are two kinds of initial ideas in there. Now... Another idea I have in the... So this is all stuff that comes out of the first section, the hive mind. Uh, let's talk about the hive mind. Um, one, there's this idea, I mean, if society, can we view it as having a mind as a whole? 
And if we go back and look at... Uh, in chapter 4, I talked about these ideas of uh, Antonio Damasio, that consciousness consists of having uh, immersion, like you're immersed in the world, you can distinguish objects, you have a movie in the brain, you have a sort of an image of what's going on, you have a proto-self, that is to say an image of yourself, you have feelings, you're assigning weights to things that happen to the proto-self, and the core consciousness is the ongoing process of forming feelings about how events affect the proto-self. And uh, it seems like society has all of these things. The, uh, well, clearly society is immersed and it sees objects. Society distinguishes you know, among cars and buildings as numbers for them and as IDs. Uh, now the movie in the brain. This is where it gets. Uh, this is where it gets. It's a little bit different. The thing that, that's a little hard to grasp is that society's hive mind. It isn't like a person's mind. Sometimes you'll see. Once I saw a swarm of bees. Uh, it was like this giant slug. There were. There must have been hundred thousand of them. Just a big glob of them, sort of oozing along. They're like looking for a new hive, and that was a hive being, and. The thing that I noticed was it didn't look at all like a bee. Okay, it looked like a giant slug. And so we need to keep in mind that the hive mind of society is not, in some ways, not going to be like the mind of a person. Now, one thing is that we'll find is that the hive mind is uh, it's sort of it's multiversal. That is to say, it is capable of having you know very different beliefs at the same time, which that's one of the reasons that society you know has a lot of issues. It doesn't agree on something. But before we get into that, what would the movie in the brain be? Well, I think this what you see in the media is sort of society's movie in the brain. It's what society is telling itself is what is happening, and. Uh, this is where you just want to weep sometimes. It's so frustrating to see the media focus on really stupid ways of looking at the world. Like, I still am waiting. Well, it seems like there should have been an apology from the media for the Y2K frenzy. I mean, we could have enjoyed like the year 2000 rolling around. That's a big deal. And they just whipped up. They got scammed, you know, by these these guys and uh, just whipped up all this terror and fear and wouldn't really dodge. It's, it's like a total, like a crazy person, you know, they just won't, won't deal with facing the wander of reaching the year 2000. I can't think about that, I'm too busy fixing my computer, you know. And of course, even in Uganda, none of the computers broke, you know. Nothing happened. <laughs> You know, does the media then say we were wrong? No, no. What's the next thing to get frantic about? You know, and just on and on. And uh, but that's we're kind of stuck with it. That's the movie in the brain of society. Now there are smaller subhives within society. Uh, like if you spend a lot of time on the web, there might be certain news sites that have the kind of news that you're interested in or, or blogs of people you like describing things. So there's, there's always different groups you can be in. But you could say that at least the, the coarsest scale, what's in the mass media is sort of society's, that's kind of society's hive mind. 
it's what society thinks is going on. And society, within that movie in the brain, within that representation of what society thinks is going on, there's images of, you know, America is a pitiful, helpless giant, or we're a cruel, fascist state, or we're uh, beleaguered, or, you know, whatever they're saying that we are that day, you know, it's, there's this image of, of the country, and there's feelings that they have about the self, this sort of image of the country, and feelings that you have about it. And these are all being things that are, in some sense, it's sort of weird how these ideas are somewhat generated, and it's not like there's some room where like two or three guys decide what's going to be in the newspapers. I mean, sometimes you'll find people who you know, are deeply paranoid, who feel like that's how it works, but somehow it isn't really like that. It's, uh, it's more that these things just sort of emerge, and it's driven by whatever people are most interested in, what they watch, what, what sells newspapers. It's a, it's a somewhat mysterious process. But um, that is, to some extent, the hive mind. And you could say, in a, in a sense, society is conscious in Damasius' way of putting it, because uh, it, it's continually forming feelings or opinions about uh, the little group of events that it focuses on and how these events affect the proto-self. So it's sort of nice to read the paper um, because it's, you know, you feel like you're plugged into that hive mind. But as I was saying earlier, um, there are times sometimes you just get such a disgust with what you see in the newspaper. It's so, uh, so much not, you know, what you would want society to be thinking about. And there are smaller hives that you can get involved in. But, uh, again, uh, one of the things that I guess that makes the hive mind sometimes not so nice to be a part of, at least in the media sense, is that it often does not seem to be engaging in a class four computation. It becomes obsessed with certain topics, uh, like the sexuality of children. That's something that, like in the 70s, the media became obsessed with that. They're always talking, there are all these like trials about like nursery school abusers, were, which actually weren't happening, but there was just like this obsession. Becomes obsessed with these certain things. Then there's the, the back and forth where we just have the, the tit for tat things going on. And uh, they're always saying, well, we need a meaningful dialogue. And that's that we want to see something class four, but it's not so often that we see that. But one thing that I also came to realize is you could, I mean, I could stop reading the paper entirely and I'm still part of society. The, the real, the kind of important stuff about society, it isn't so much the, this, uh, this show that you see in the newspapers. It's the fact that you can buy food and you have a house and you have a language. I know that's, the, the computation that society is doing that's really the kind of the most interesting is uh, producing this huge physical hive that we live in. Now, there's, that's the thing. You know, that's, that's what society does that's really good. I mean, forget about whether or not you like who's in the White House. Uh, it's, uh, I've got a car. I can buy gas. 
You know, I can come here. We can arrange to meet here in this room at a certain time. And we all know to show up here, which is kind of amazing. And then, you know, I, I can talk to you guys. And, and I actually get paid to do this. I mean, this is a good deal. <laughs> I mean, society it does, does some things nice. And so language and culture and technology, they're the sort of honey in the hive. They're the nice things that, that society does. Um, and I'll say a little more about language in a minute. Um, one more thing I want to mention relating to hive. There's always this persistent feeling that when we look at the Internet, in some ways it seems so much like a like a neural network. In other words, we've got the computers, they're nodes, they're just kind of like neurons, and they're all linked to each other, and they're all communicating with each other. And so there's this, this feeling sometimes that maybe someday the Internet might wake up. You know, sometimes this, this super mind might emerge in the Internet. And uh, who could, could that happen? Uh, well, in, it could, but the thing is... Uh, it's we sort of control pretty much closely what our computers are doing. We, we don't let them really work together that strongly. Um, and the Internet itself, you don't really have... I mean, what's going on in the real world where we have newspapers, you know, we're building buildings. It's, it's really so much richer than what's going on inside the Internet. Because the, within the Internet, there really isn't what you could think of as a movie in the brain. The Internet doesn't have sort of some clear image of what's going on. Unless you might say, maybe it's the DNS server that, that knows where all the IP addresses are, or where it figures out how to do the routing. But these aren't things that are really interesting. In some sense, the Internet is not, it's not immersed in the physical world in, in so much the same way that we, we human beings are. It's, it's a little more abstract. But... Um, Still, there's this fantasy that maybe someday the Internet would, would wake up. When sometimes in, in Hollywood movies, when the Internet wakes up, then you know, it says, well, now you, know, now you humans will be my slaves. And I always have to laugh at that because we're already the slaves of the computers. I mean, I think I've mentioned this before. There's nothing more we could do for computers than we're already doing. I mean, what, what more could we possibly do for them? We're always talking about them. We're building them. You know, we're designing better ones. If you have a computer, you, you know, you spend a great deal of your time caring for it, you know, fixing it, downloading patches. I mean, there's, there's no... So the idea of the computer saying, now I will rule, there's nothing more they could get. Okay, so if they wake up, they're probably, it's more likely they'd be, you know, well, thanks, you've been doing a really nice job, you know. So I don't think we have to be too afraid of them. Um, I have some things about language. Because um, language is sort of the, that's one of the more interesting social computations that we have. Um, a couple of points to make. I found a nice way of de describing telepathy that I think is kind of cool. Uh, suppose your computer does this computation to generate some complicated fractal, like the Mandelbrot set. 
There's three ways, uh, <laughs> the three ways the computer could show you that, that, that image. It could just, there's a sort of language-like method, and it could simply tell you the algorithm that it used and say, okay, this is, this is, here are the tools for making this image. Here's the algorithm. Here are the parameters I used. You take those, and then you can create the image in your own head. And that's sort of how language works. Because we don't actually, I don't, if I want you know, I could describe some party I went to, you know, some lavish Playboy Mansion type scene, you know, people dancing on the tables and a giant gold bowls full of champagne. I go on and on, and you're building this picture in your mind. But all I'm doing is really giving you a kit to make the picture. I'm giving you words, and you're building it. Now, another way to go about would be to suppose I took some photographs, and that's another way of doing it. You could say, let's pass you a visual representation. I could give you, or in terms of the computer and the Mandelbrot set, it could send you a JPEG of the image that it had. So rather than giving you the, the tools for building the image, it can just give you the image. In actual language, we, we don't really do that. Spo in spoken language, in any case, it doesn't really lend itself to that. In spoken language, you're pretty much limited to giving somebody the kit. But we do, uh, we use gestures, you know, sometimes, sometimes that's an easier way to describe something than to uh, just use the words, you know, a shape you can mold in the air. Now, a third thing that you can do with computers that at this point people can't do, but it'd be cool if we could, computer could say, look, you want to see the Mandelbrot set that I just made? Here's a link. And it just says, you know, you just click this link, you'll actually go to this spot on the computer and you'll view, maybe without even down, I guess you'd have to, without even downloading it, you could just access that data and, and get it directly. And that would be, when I was working at Autodesk in those years I was talking about before, there was this guy called Ted Nelson. And he was a, a very early computer visionary. And he had this idea for a product called Xanadu. And he had the idea that there should be only one copy of any piece of information on the internet. Because he said then everybody can always just link to the same piece, uh, to that same representation of the information. Like a lot of times you might have noticed if, like the other day, I was, there's a certain Zen koan I was interested in involving a, a short staff. And uh, it's where some guy holds up a stick and says, our staff, he says, uh, what is this? He says, if you call it, if you call it a, a stick, you're limiting it. But if you say it's not a stick, you're denying reality. And so what do you say? And so I searched for that uh, on Google, and I found you know, maybe 50 different sites, and everybody has the exact same text. So they copy the text, they move it to their site, and they put it there. So a lot, you might have found that. If you, sometimes you'll say, oh, I got all these hits, there's so much information. And you found out every single person has just cut and pasted the same, <laughs> the same exact thing. So it, it would have been cool, and it's too late to do it now, but Ted Nelson, I mean, he has some really great ideas that didn't all work out. But it would be cool if there's just one version. If the guy that wrote something sort of got to have the only version that was on the web, and everybody... It would just rapidly always fetch that from where he kept it. And that would be nice also because then, you know, he could revise it or she could revise it and then uh, it would always be up to date. 
Another, the reason that he especially thought this was good was then you could set, in effect, uh, micropayments. So, you know, if I wrote something that people liked, and if the only way to, get, to read it was to get it off my site, if for some reason it was impossible to actually copy it and post it somewhere else, then there'd be a way to, you know, register the hits and, and to have a, a little meter running. But uh, that's not the way it worked out. Another thing Ted Nelson was very interested in was reverse links. He thought it was really important for any page to be able to find all the pages that link to that page. Uh, Google can do that. Right, there's some way to access that information. Sure. Right, you, they get their page ranked by saying, you know, if just lamers link to this page, it's not so good, but if there's lots of links and these guys have high page rank, then there's this young science fiction writer called Cory Doctorow. He wrote a book called Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. It's about Disney World in Florida. I, I don't know why. Cory's he's kind of obsessed with Disney World in Florida. He's Canadian. But uh, it's kind of a neat book. And the, he has this word in there he calls it Wuffy, W-H-U-F-F-I-E. And it's like everybody in the world has a Wuffy, which is essentially their page rank or how, how, like, how much credibility they have. And you can see it because everybody has this sort of heads-up display built into their, I don't know, contact lenses that they're wearing or something. So you look at somebody, you can see a sort of bar on their head, you know. This person has really high woofy, so whatever they say is going to be worth listening to. And then, and then you can pass it on. Like, pay, if somebody with high page rank links to you, well, that's that's what getting blurbs from famous people on, on your book is about to try to get some woofy off them. But um, anyway, so there's three ways we could do language. Language is a toolkit, or you could do a representational image. Or you could do the telepathic link. Um, will we ever be able to, to get into telepathy? Uh, well, it's a matter of degree. It's the, the kind of word telepathy is kind of wrapped in all this this sort of history of pseudoscience and and debate. But in principle, it, it seems. I mean, if you'd never seen a telephone. You know, and you suddenly saw somebody, two people with cell phones, you'd feel like, you know, they've got telepathy. I mean, he's over here, she's over there, they're talking to each other. So it's sort of a matter of degree. But then you say, oh, it's, it's a little machine and they have to talk. So you, you, there's a sense that maybe for it to really be telepathy, you shouldn't have to talk out loud. So then, uh, then again, that doesn't seem insuperable, though. Because you can think words without actually saying them, and I think there's a way to, I think there's even a way to get a subvocal microphone where you can actually barely be thinking words, and I think a microphone can pick them up in your chest. Or uh, maybe there'd be a way to. In my science fiction books, I always have this device called an UVI, U V V Y. It's this little soft piece of smart plastic that people wear on the back of their neck, and. Uh, 
In some versions, I have it sinking hair-fine tendrils into your neck and probing into your spinal cord. But that's, that's hard to sell a product that does that. <laughs> so nowadays, I say, let's say it's got magnetic field vortices that reach in like an MRI scan or something. And that's, that's a little more palatable. People don't like the hair-fine tendrils sinking into their spinal cord. That's not something they want. But... Uh, People under 30 might go for it. <laughs> In where? People under 30 might go for it. Oh, yeah, people under 30 might go for it, yeah. Spinal tap. But, uh, but if there was something like that, I mean, if you got so you could have this sort of cell phone conversation without talking out loud, it'd be sort of close to telepathy. But still, you'd probably still be exchanging language. Could you ever like link actually into another person's brain and feel their thoughts? Uh, that's not so clear. That, that would be harder to do. Um, that would be harder to do. Though maybe there would be some way to do that too. To somehow tap in directly to their deepest sensations. Um, a two-way... Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, it could happen, but not not really soon. Now, another thing about language that's worth noticing is that uh, even it, this is something that Emil Post proved. You, if you take even a simple rule, rules for language, there's actually uh, there's no way to exhaustively list. There's no way to predict in advance whether or not somebody might possibly say something. Uh, there's these sort of what they call grammar generation rules, and uh, we can get into ways to generate sentences that somebody might possibly say. And uh, you could, over time, list all the sentences that, that some device might be able to utter, but it it could take forever to find out if a given sentence was going to be said or not. So that's a point I get into, but I don't think I'll delve into that any deeper than that. Okay, now, uh, at this point I get into the power law stuff, and like I say, I think I'm just going to zap over that. Uh, I don't feel like dealing with explaining it. It's what? Spilled milk. Spilled milk, yeah. Yeah, it's really just, I was just bracing myself for not not selling 100,000 copies of this book. Sort of getting ready for that uh, by analyzing it. Um, there are some interesting rules, though. I guess there's one rule, as long as I've got the projector here. There's one demo I probably should show you. There's a couple of nice demos. Uh, I, I ought to show you the sand pile rule and maybe the forest fire rule and the... Uh, Maybe the Zeldovich city rule. Let's see if this thing comes back back up. Okay. So, um, so as I mentioned, um, most things in society, pretty much all of them, get distributed according to power laws. And that means... Uh, a typical power law has the form 
the number of uh, people at level L is typically going to be some constant over L raised to some small number, like, like uh, maybe one or two or three. Okay, so so it's typically uh, if you do a graph where uh, this is the L and then uh, this would be like getting a lot of L. This would be not much L. And typically, we have these curves that look like this. Okay, and uh, they're called power law because it's one over something raised to a power. In a way, power law is a little bit. I think they should really call them inverse power laws. But uh, most things in society tend to be uh, distributed this way. It's the old thing, like 1% of the people get 90% of the money. You know, 10% of the people get uh, get the rest of it, and everybody else gets 10 cents. So it's, uh, and it always seems sort of evil, but it just turns out, for various reasons I try to analyze in this chapter, it seems to be something that's kind of inevitable. In societies, it's not—it's not capitalism, it's not communism. It's just—it's just the way that nature works. In the like, upper right-hand corner always—it's like uh, it's favorable for single, like two under. Uh huh. Like a single bird will always swing around right there. Okay, we're looking at the bird simulation. It seems like the bird likes to get stuck in the upper right-hand corner. Yeah, not in the other corners. Huh. Uh, if that's really true, that would mean there was a bug in the program, right? Well, just happen again. Well, not necessarily. Well, okay. Well, because it should be symmetric. I mean, there shouldn't be anything different one corner from the other. Why? Uh, well, I mean, what what would be different? It's symmetric. I mean, everything's supposed to be the same. But it does sort of look like they like that corner. Well, you can figure that out for next week. Uh, well, no, I mean, if you're doing a simulation and everything's supposed to be the same in every direction, it should it should be that the same things happen in every corner. But I'm going to show you a couple of these 2D power law CAs. Uh, so let's look at... Uh, Let's see. 2D, uh, well, I'll show you the fire one first of all. 2D forest fire 9. And uh, let's flip this. So um, let's go to open the 3D view controls. Oh, and, and press the flip button. Yeah. So we get a, a flat image. And. Uh, what you're seeing here is, uh, it's actually a Zabatov, Belisov Zabatinsky rule. You can see those faint scrolls. This is uh, some geologists came up with this, or geographers, I guess they're called, of saying, let's do a simulation where we're imagining having trees that are occasionally struck by lightning. And uh, if they're struck by lightning, then they burn and then uh, 
we have the fire propagating. So that's uh, the, the white things are the burning cells. And then a tree is not, I think a tree is not ready to burn until it's, I believe, until it's red. Okay, I think, uh, yeah, it seems like the, the white stuff is burning up the red stuff. And then the, uh, the blue things are the sort of burnt out areas. Yeah. So the, the red trees are continually growing. Lightning is hitting them and causing forest fires. Now, what's the power law aspect here? This would be if, uh, let's see, if, if you measure the sizes of the forest fires. So for each time that a dot is turned on, you could measure how many red cells actually get burned by that particular thing. And it turns out that will lie in a power law distribution. A, a nicer or kind of more dramatic, or do you have a question about that? There's another version where they only look at two neighbors, uh, 2D Forest Fire 5. See, this is either they look at nine neighbors or at five neighbors. So again, the, the power law thing you would measure, I think, would be how long, let's see. What is it that you're measuring for your power law? The size of a cascade, okay? So a cascade would be like randomly some, randomly the cells are getting set to white every now and then. And sometimes the sun gets set to white and it dies out right away. And then others of them manage to have a, a much longer lasting degree of success. And so there will be a few really big ones bunch of medium ones and lots of ones that you don't you hardly even see they just they, they, they die right away actually another example of a power loss cellular automaton um, and this would be uh, the Zeldovich this is kind of a, a very neat rule I like this one the Zeldovich city uh, okay. So this is a a very nice, simple rule. What we do here is uh, at every update, each cell. So this is supposed to be population, okay? And uh, so we I loaded the rule uh, Zeldovich nine, I think. And uh, what we're doing for the update is that every update I'm averaging, each cell is averaging its neighbors. So that corresponds to the idea that people migrate, they move around in their neighborhood. And then what we're doing to drive the thing to sort of be dynamic is uh, at every cell you flip a coin and say, uh, let's say half the time the population will double at this location, and half the time the population at this location will totally die out. So it's this sort of boom or bust. Now if you're in a densely populated area, if like your cell dies out, the thing is that the next averaging step, you're going to get some stuff averaged back into you, so it's okay. It's sort of like if you're in 
in a, like we're in San Jose, they, they tear down a building, but you come back next year and then the people have spilled back in there. So it's like, it doesn't die out. And this Zeldovich rule looks particularly dramatic. If we look at the 3D version, the picture of it. So if we go to the uh, sheet version, so it's, uh, so you have a few really big spikes. See, that's Stephen King. That's his sales there. And you have lots of medium ones. And then, you know, even more tiny, tiny ones. Now, uh, the Zeldovich rule, I think the, the parameter that you get is, uh, let's see, it was invented by a physicist for some completely other reason, having nothing to do with uh, cellular automata. One thing that I found in studying the literature, um, yeah, it actually is a nice n equals c over l squared. So it's a precisely l squared, which is kind of interesting. One thing I found in researching, a lot of times scientists will write papers about rules like this, and they won't even mention that it's a cellular automaton. Uh, I think, to me, that, that annoys me because I love cellular automata and you know, I want them to get the credit they deserve. But uh, I think some people maybe aren't aware that if you can put continuous valued numbers into a rule, it's still a cellular automaton. And there's also, uh, I don't know. But anyway, certainly this is a cellular automaton. One thing about it, um, one thing that is still lacking, a research thing that I would like to see someone come up with, the forest fire rule and this rule and the sand pile rule, which maybe I'll show you, they all have a sort of random aspect to them. Because what we're doing in the Zeldovich rule, we're flipping a coin at each cell and deciding whether to cut the value in half or double it. So every cell, we average it with its neighbors, and then we also either double it or have it. Now, again, it's because of the averaging that you don't see just, if you just doubled or halved it, then you, you just have random fuzz, but the averaging makes these things concentrate together. Now, um, but the thing is, what, what's kind of nicer is a rule like Brian's brain, which is uh, completely deterministic, okay? It's, uh, there's no randomness in Brian's brain. That's our good old favorite. Let's just load that up just for fun. Uh, so brain dot G. And so this is our dear old brain. And uh, one thing I think you might have in brain, though, somehow I'm not the kind of person that would carry out this investigation. It's sort of my, I, I tend to lose, I'm not that interested in this kind of thing, but it seems like if somebody went to a little bit of trouble, maybe there is a power law here. Maybe there's like, it seems like there's a few really big sort of glider ships. Then there's lots of tiny things. And I think it might be if we looked at a big simulation of Brian's brain and we measured, uh, then we just froze a picture and we counted the size of each object. So we would say an object, they sort of break up if, uh, if something's, you know, you could draw a circle around something that's all in the black, then that's one object. You'd say, how many lit cells are in this? There'll be a few, you know, huge ones, lesser of them. So I think we may be getting uh, a power law here, too. 
This, once again, is a, a fairly good model of things spreading in society. Now, one thing I mentioned, these power laws have to do a lot with how ideas spread in society, how ideas become popular. And uh, Brian's brain is, again, it's sort of a good example of that, too. It's like we have people passing the word on to neighbors, okay? But then there's also the element of being refractory. You know, I just bought an album. I don't want to get another new album. You know, I'm not interested. I just went to the movies. You get worn out on something. And, uh, but it's, uh, it's kind of a really great rule. Okay. Um, so I said I wasn't going to talk about power laws, but then I did talk about them a little bit. Now, uh, maybe I'll do ten more minutes. Um, okay. The flow of history uh, in society is, uh, again, it's, I mean, we would imagine if even people walking down a sidewalk is class four, it's not going to be surprising that something like the stock market is going to be class four. And even more so is uh, history. That's one of the surprising things do happen. In other words, history never stops. That's something that's it's soothing, too. Uh, well, there's an upside and a downside. I mean, terrible cataclysms do happen, even though you think everything's settled down. Things never stay settled down in, in, in human history. Things always get stirred up again. Um, now, so you never you never reach a fixed final state, and uh, you also the periodic thing doesn't hold up either. So it's not like there used to be this sort of idea we have you know, civilizations rise and decline, and to some extent that's true, but it's never the same thing twice really. Okay, civilizations decline in different ways. And it's certainly not completely random. So society is very much a class four. Okay, here's, let's see the sand pile here. Let me show you this one too. Uh, yeah, this would be the, the sand pile rule. It sort of settled down. Now, if I the sand pile rule dies out, but if you add another dot to it, it can. Uh, Let's see, how can I add a dot to it? Um, I guess I'll go to control generator and maybe add a generator. Uh, oh, well, this demo's not going to work. Never mind. Okay. Uh, let's try to load something. Sim oh, never mind. Forget about this. Okay. Um, I'm not really giving my best lecture ever today. I've been... Uh, not feeling too good. But we only have two more classes. There's today and next time. We're going to have to do the sixth lecture next time, chapter six. So um, what else can I tell you about chapter five? Well, the thing, one thing I think is fun at the, is at the very end, that table where we have the uh, look at all these things that happen in society in terms of being computations. Like radios, 
while books broadcast digital thoughts, radio broadcasts analog emotion. The hive mind gains power as listeners form real-time virtual crowds. There's a lot of kind of cool things in there. I got a lot of these things from Marshall McLuhan. Um, cell phones are interesting. They make it easier to have small hive minds. That's, that's something where people, sometimes they call it flash mobs, where people organize and arrange things very rapidly by cell phone. It's a sort of telepathic thing, which is really cool. 